So I have to retract something that I said last week. So last week we spent pretty much three quarters of our time together just looking at one verse, Hebrews 11, chapter 1. And we got really technical. I parsed out all the words and we built a, a uh, you know, a definition of biblical faith. We contrasted biblical faith from the type of faith, the, the normal everyday faith and trust that people have, that biblical faith has substance. But what I said was I was going to get technical and, you know, really spend a lot of time on that and that the rest of uh, chapter 11 would go relatively quickly and that I would cover it tonight. Well, then I started looking at Hebrews chapter 11 and to do that would really be to short circuit almost the whole purpose of the book. Because he, from, from here on out is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And so there's a reason why all of the, you know, as we go down through what's commonly known as Faith's Hall of Fame, all of the different names of the patriarchs, there's a reason why uh, the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inserted those there. Because there's something, there's a certain flavor or a certain attribute of each one of those that demonstrates that that demonstrates to us what biblical faith is what it looks like in real life having examined it from a real technical perspective last week and uh i i didn't i didn't make it technical it is technical right and so a lot of people will read that verse and just blow over it without understanding or picking it apart and seeing that it actually is a very technical definition almost like a mathematical formula Right, and you got to take it apart piece by piece. That's what we did last week. So what you have in your hand is you actually have two sessions of notes. So uh, I'm thinking, okay, so I went and looked and I have <coughs> six sessions just on Hebrews chapter 11, which is a lot. And, uh, and you've got two sections. What I'd like to try and do, I don't know if it's going to be doable, is to cover two sections of notes a night. So we'll skip over a lot of the fluff, like the introductory comments. Like if we get through section one notes tonight and we're moving on to section two, then I can just you know, blow by the introduction to section two and just get right into the biblical verses that, that comprise section two. But I don't know if that's gonna happen, but you know, we'll, I'll give it a shot and we'll see what happens. So if you, if you weren't here last week, um, I really want to impress upon you the importance of going back and watching the video session, right, like a, of those first three verses in Hebrews chapter 11, because it really maps out the difference between biblical faith and the faith and trust that we have as a result of experience and statistical data that we accumulate. Okay. So I'll start right in on the notes. Faith, what is it? It's a substance and it has being. It's different from human statistical experience-based concept. Biblical faith is the conduit through which the grace of God flows to his children. It is under the same potential as the mustard seed. So everyone remembers the parable of the mustard seed. If you nourish it and feed it, it will expand to meet the needs of greater grace. Just like the mustard seed or any other seed for that matter, if it does not receive that which it needs for growth, will not die, but will go dormant. Well, this faith, what does it do? 
it is that which gives us a confident hope and expectation. This hope and expectation comes because faith is also evidence. When we discern his presence in our lives, we are assured that God has made the choice to adopt us as his children. And that's what we're driving at. That's what we're that's what we're that's what we're going to be investigating over the next several weeks as we examine the expression of this biblical faith through the patriarchs is is to 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 learn to see it, to see it in them and then look for its presence in our life. And when we find that pre its presence manifesting itself in our lives, it becomes, you know, it, it, it's a it's proof of sonship. And so it strengthens us, it strengthens our confidence and our and our expectation, uh, you, you know, of what's to come that we can't um, that we can't see with our eyes. We can't touch it right now. You know, I got an email from um, this afternoon when I got home from school from an old uh, airport buddy who happens to be a Christian. You know, he, he, he retired right around the same time I did. And, uh, you know, his message to, was, to me was simple, no more birthdays, <laughs> right? And I said, better yet, year one kingdom, right? So we have that hope and we have that expectation. Okay, uh, for he only gives his faith to those whom he has chosen to adopt, redeem, justify, and glorify. And this knowledge contextualizes everything that we experience in this life as that which the providence of God is ordering to bring us to him. That is, as I said last week, that is the most difficult part, but yet it is the most essential part of when you're doing any kind of counseling, especially counseling those who have suffered under some sort of trauma in their lives, is you have to, you have to take that trauma and, and recalibrate it under, the, under a worldview where God is sovereign, right? So we believe that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. The Bible speaks of God's sovereignty from Genesis to Revelation. That means that everything that happens in your life, everything that has happened in my life, has happened there by just, if you want to soften the blow a little bit, by God's permissive will. But the reality is, is that, you know, as Jesus said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's will, right? So everything that happens, so that's the most difficult part, is, is recalibrating all of the bad stuff that happens in our lives under the idea that God is sovereign, I trust him, and I don't like this, I don't like what I'm going through, but I do trust him, and it is that trust, which is based on something you can't see, that gets you through those dark times and helps you through uh, whatever it is that you may be going through at the particular time. So the knowledge contextualizes everything that we experience in this life as that which the providence of God is ordering to bring us to him. Through the same faith, the elders, the patriarchs that we read about in the Bible obtained a good testimony, and so too may we. Now a cautionary word about this faith. It can go dormant through non-cultivation, through distraction, through fear and intimidation. And we see this when we read in, uh, in, in 2 Timothy, right? In 2 Timothy, uh, Paul enjoined the spiritual son, uh, Timothy, to fan the flame, to fan, and that's what it is to, actually, I'm not sure if I'm giving you the English translation, but the Greek sense of the word, 
says that a, a fire that has gone dim that is just now hot coals to fan it to life again and so that's what had happened um, to his faith uh, through fear and intimidation living vibrant faith always express, expresses itself through works okay so we're going to move on now and see what how faith expresses what it looks like in real time so in Genesis, you don't have to turn there. Uh, what I'm just giving you here is a synopsis of what's in those verses that are referenced there. And then, you know, we'll look at, at, the, at the text in Hebrews chapter 11. So the name Abel actu actually means transitory or unsatisfactory or vapor. Now, uh, the... Uh, you know, one of the things that I've heard said, and I, I'm, come, I'm starting to agree with it, is that before the, before the Tower of Babel, there was one language, right? And, uh, and there are those who believe that that language was Hebrew. And that language was Hebrew is because Hebrew is really the only language where names have meanings, right? And so, and so the name Abel means transitory, unsatisfactory or vapor so the name tells us that there was some dissatisfaction on behalf of his parents towards him now I, and I think I mentioned this before and you can read in some commentaries that when the the promise of Genesis 3:15 was made to Eve uh, that she would through her seed would bring forth would come one who would crush the the head of the serpent when Cain was born, she assumed that it was Cain, but it wasn't Cain, right? And so, uh, and so, as a result of that, there was something about Abel that they found dissatisfaction because, well, that's the name they gave him, right? Transitory, unsatisfactory, or vapor, right? Something that is passing. He was small in stature, not very rugged. Maybe he was not suited to the hard work of cultivating the ground. This was what his father and older brother did. And so it's natural for a father to desire a son to follow in his footsteps. He was a keeper of the sheep, that is to tend, uh, to feed, to associate, and to be a friend to sheep. So he hung around and spent his time with sheep. They were his friends. This also likely indicates that he was a loner and an introvert. Now, I mean, we're, we're kind of expanding, we're kind of extrapolating on what the text of Scripture here says. And, and some of this information is drawn from several sources. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, I've also looked at some, some rabbinical commentaries to come down with this stuff. But, but he was a keeper of the sheep. Well, what did he do? Okay, well, in Genesis 4.4, it says, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. So the firstborn of his flock, every female, when she bore lambs, he would bring them to the Lord. And of their fat indicates that he had sacrificed them to God. So, um, so we learn a couple of things here. So we learn right, at, so when you think about it, what would be the purpose of raising sheep, right? Now, remind you, we're prior to the Noahic covenant, right? So prior to the eating of meat, right? So the killing of animals for eating meat did not was not sanctioned until the Noahic covenant was instituted. So what would be the purpose 
of being a sheep herder at that time. Their wool, milk, right? But also, clearly, 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 there was a sacrificial system instituted at this time. Because Abel is, is offering of the, first, the firstborn of his flock. Now, the firstborn of his flock. So every female, when it produced a litter, I don't know if that's the correct word for sheep babies, a litter of sheep, the first one would be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. Because it opened the womb. All right? So this was in all likelihood a considerable amount of, uh, of, of offering. So it, it was not easy for them because uh, if you know anything about shepherds, they are, I think the relationship between a shepherd and the sheep is actually even closer than the relationship between a person and, and their pet dog, right? So it would be like, it, it would kind of be like Roman has a German shepherd, right? So you raise a German shepherd, your kids are all rolling around with it you know, on the carpet and whatever they do. And then when the shepherd gets to be one year old, you sacrifice the shepherd. Right? Not an easy thing to do, right? So he was not just sacrificing farm animals. These were his friends, his companions, the living beings he spent most of his time with. What he loved the most in life, he gave to God. And that's the point here. This tells us how much he loved God and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Respected means he looked at it with regard. It caught his attention. So Hebrews 11.4, moving now in the text, says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Cain gave of that which he did not love. Abel gave what he loved. But more than that, think about this now. So, so, uh, so Cain, Cain brought an offering to the Lord, right? But the offering was what? What was the offering that he brought to the Lord? Something of the ground, right? So something of the ground was never, nothing of the ground later in the, in the sacrificial system was ever approved for atoning for sin. It always had to be a blood sacrifice, yeah. right? And so there, right there in Genesis, you have the, you know, the foundation of what later would become the sacrificial system that was instituted on Mount Sinai. You have Abel offering up the blood and the fat, right, killing the animal. And you have Cain, in essence, uh, offering up what would later be called the grain offering, right? And what was the purpose of the grain offering? Does anyone remember? Well, it accompanied. Yeah. So there was a difference there. So, so now could Cain have, now I'm just speculating here off the top of my head, could Cain have purchased or whatever, gotten from his brother a lamb to offer as a sacrifice? He could have, but he did not. The idea here there is that Cain, uh, Abel brought of the very best that he had 
uh, while Cain did not. Okay? All right. So he was willing to give up. Abel gave what he loved. Cain gave of that which he did not love. He was willing to give up what he loved the most, what brought him the greatest pleasure in his life to God. His hope, expectation was in the realization that what he really loved the most, God would be his reward at the end of it all. And through his faith, he still speaks and leaves us an example that we should follow. So how does this apply to us? Okay, so what can we learn from this? Well, here, here are just some questions for self-reflection. What is it that we love the most that brings us the greatest joy in this life? How does it compare with the love that we have for Christ? So, so this isn't you know, really an issue for us, right? But if you were living in the first few century of the Christian era, especially under the, you know, one of the 10 persecutions, empire-wide persecutions that occurred for early Christians, there were there documented cases where uh, you know, uh, somebody was brought before the magistrate and, uh, and asked to renounce Christ and to sacrifice to the gods. And in front of him there were his or her family who would be killed right in front of them if they had refused to do that, right? Some capitulated, some did not, right? But it begs the question, what is it that we love the most that brings us the greatest joy in this life? And how does it compare with the love that we have for Christ? If it's a distraction, or if it keeps us from pursuing Christ as we should, have we given it up because we love Christ above all else, right? So now, you know, let, let's talk about this a little bit. So, I mean, I think most of us would say, I, I don't think any of us would say, what is it that we love the most about life, which brings us the greatest joy would be our jobs, right? Nobody would say that. Nobody would say that for a boat or a Harley Davidson or a house or anything like that. But we would all probably say our children. Right. Um, does that mean here that, you know, and, and certainly children are can be a distraction, right? <laughs> <laughs> children can be a distraction, right? So Am I saying here that we ought to give up our children because they're distracting us from following Christ? No, absolutely not. Because following Christ requires that we love our children and raise them in the right way. But there can come a certain point where that goes over the top and it begins to hinder your pursuit of Christ. Can you give me an example of that? Go ahead, Doug. Yep. Yep. So there are there are, there are things like that, right? Just the busyness of parenthood is more than enough, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I said to you know to to Pastor Roman yesterday via text, just because of some things, you know, that um, I would rather rather face a horde of demons than a teenage girl, <laughs> right? You know. And he said, you sure? And he goes, you know, you raised one. And I replied, yeah, and I barely survived. 
<laughs> well, it's true. I mean, it was tough. It's tough raising kids, right? Well, no, no, no. He didn't say kids. He said daughters. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, no, no. But what I will say is that it is difficult, and it can, and it can be a distraction. What's that, Doug? Okay. So the point is, is there has to be, you know, there there has to be a balance there. We're required, as as a uh, a component of following Christ, that we raise our children in the right way. That we give them the due attention that they need and the support and sustenance, all of those things, not just the material things, but the spiritual things. More important, are we inputting spirituality into the lives of our children? But even with our children, it can get to a point where it becomes a distraction, right? And it's at that point, and it's at that point that, you know, we might have to make tough decisions. Nope, you're not playing. You know, when, and I remember this was an issue with Mark and Lewis when they were small, you know, and uh, Little League Baseball, and it's like, nope. I told the coach straight out, they will not be there on Sundays, you know. And so Sundays is church day. And you know what? The coach respected it, you know. So, so. So the point being is that what we can learn from Abel is that he gave his very best. He didn't hold anything back. He gave his very best to God. So again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he still, he being dead, still speaks. Okay. Verse 5. Now, next we move on to Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Okay. Now, we're going to see here that, that, that verse 5 connects with verse 6 and tells us, you know, it gives us more specific specific information about what it was that Enoch did that was pleasing to God. But let me read in the notes. Enoch comes from the line of Seth. Enoch literally means dedicated. He was dedicated to God by his parents. Do we and how do we dedicate our children to Christ, right? And so um, since you have been here, have you done any baby dedications? Okay. So, so there's, so what happens in a baby dedication? Pastor, the, the uh, parents make a vow. It's actually, yeah, it's the fourth of, it actually, I think, carries the force of an oath, right? So when you make an oath, you make an oath to God, right? And so when you dedicate your child, what you're doing is you're entering into an oath with God that you're going to raise your children in the faith. Right, that you're going to impart to them, you know, the, you know, the faith. But, um, but how do we do that, right? Well, it's not just a ceremony. It actually has to be followed up by actually intention, right? This is what we're going to do. We're going to, first of all, we're going to set the right example at home, right? Second of all, we're going to get them into a place where they're getting sound teaching, Three, we're going to do the best that we can to shelter them, you know, from the horrors of the world right now. I mean, it's horrible right now, you know. So, 
Um, I, I sent um, I sent Roman a uh, you know a, a tweet that I, I think it's a tweet. Yeah, it was a tweet that I came across today. It was a kind of a big thing on Fox News. This uh, elementary school teacher, um, you know, it's, it's like they're dumb. Why would you put something like this out in the world for people to see and expose yourself? You know, she's a she's an elementary school teacher. No, she's an elementary school music teacher. And uh, and one of her one of her fellow teachers came up to her and said, you know, I had so and so come up to me and ask me um, if you were a man or a woman. And you know. The conversation goes on, and then at the end of it all, this woman says, that's exactly what my purpose is, to confuse them. Mission accomplished. My purpose is to confuse them. So, you know, that's part of, yeah, th this is working in an elementary school, right? So that's part of what it means to dedicate your children to the Lord, right, is to, is to, you not only impart spiritual truth to them, but do what you can to shelter them, you know, from, from the horror that eventually they're going to face. You know, that's part of my daily lecture to the students that I have in, in, uh, in, the, in the class that I teach here at the school. Look, you need to pay attention to this stuff now. Because sooner or later you're going to blast off into the world. And this has been my experience. Now, this is, you know, I've, I've taught in a couple of Christian schools, is that those students who didn't take what was presented to them seriously, when they got out of school, they got swamped by the world. Those who did take it seriously took it to heart. They did okay when they had to step out into the world. But those who trifled with it, they got swamped when they stepped into the world and they got overrun by the world and if you were to look at some of their lives right now not making a judgment on their salvation at all that's not my job uh, but there's a little discernible difference between them and anyone else in the world yeah yeah Yeah, well, so, so in, the, in the lesson we're going through right now, the Divine Comedy, Inferno by Dante, and we're, today we covered that section of hell where those who commit suicide are sent in Dante's vision of hell. So I asked them the question, is suicide ever biblically sanctioned? I asked them that question, and they all came back with a resounding no. And then I took them to that chapter in Judges where Samson collapses the pillar, kills everybody, and on himself, he committed suicide, right? And so not, not that it's the same thing, but what I wanted to point out to them, anyone, you're going to get questioned on that. There were people in the world who know that story, and when you say no, they'll say, well, didn't Samson in the Bible commit suicide? How are you going to answer that, right? So these are the kinds of things that we need to prepare our kids to, to answer in the world. Okay. So Enoch, um, parents who dedicate their children to the Lord by word, deed, and example raise children in many cases who are dedicated to the Lord, at least in their childhood. 
That is until we give them over to the world. Enoch walked with God 300 years. This 300-year walk began after his 65th year of life. Something happened around the birth of, the Methu of Methuselah that changed the course of his life. From that point on, he walked with God until God took him. He is one of two people in the Bible that God translated without having to die. But what does it mean that he walked with, with God? And there's the verse, uh, again, I won't read it, but jumping just below it. It says, he pleased God. This tells us that his 300-year walk with God brought pleasure to God, but it still does not tell us what it was about that 300-year walk that brought pleasure to God. That comes in the next verse. But verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God believes, number one, that he is. What do you think that means, that he is? That he's real, that he exists. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So this is, verse 6 stands as a parenthetical that tells us what it was. He believed that God is. He lived his daily life with the firm belief and conviction that God was an ever-present reality and being. Always there. That God was always present in, in observation of his life and choices. Right? So Enoch lived his life that way, with the ever-present reality that God was always present and in observation of his lifestyle and the choices that he made from day to day. All of our choices have consequences, right? And all of our choices, uh, you know, they, they it's kind of like, you know, when you, when you drop a pebble into the water, you know, it, it makes impact right there, but it has consequences that are far-reaching. And so the same thing is true in our lives. And so Enoch understood that, and he lived his life that way. So he, he lived his life with the constant knowledge, appreciation, and awareness that God was present and observing his lifestyle and choices. And point two, he believed that God is a rewarder or one who pays wages. So this belief expressed itself in real time through Enoch's 300-year diligence seeking in pursuit of God. Diligence is persistent effort, work, industrious in character. Enoch was dedicated to God by his parents. Enoch was a dedicated individual who through persistence work and industrious pursuit pursued and walked with God for 300 years. This is point two on how true faith expresses itself in real time when it comes to the direction of where and how we express our persistent effort, hard work, and industry. Is it being expressed in the pursuit and walk with God or in the things of the world? Enoch's, Enoch made it here to the Faith Hall of Fame because his life work and his pursuit was after God and after the reward that God would give. And so you know, to, to reuse a phrase that's been used by others, and I've used it a hundred times myself, is Enoch was a man who lived with eyes for eternity. He saw beyond the veil of this life. Right? And so, so far, what have we learned about this faith that has being, it's real. 
right? Remember I said last week that the type of faith that says expresses itself as, you know, if I sit on that chair, I can sit on that chair and it's not going to collapse under me. It's based on experience and statistical probability, but it doesn't have existence apart from me. It only exists as an attribute of me. Whereas the biblical faith that is being talked about here exists as a separate entity from me. It's something that's imparted to me and it's imparted to you by God as part of the gifting of faith because it is actually an attribute of God. So it has being, it has existence, or you know, the theological term is ontology, right? It has being. So, so far we've learned that this is, this is how, now remember, let's pull it all back into the context, right? So this is all being written to Messianic Jews who were struggling in their faith. They were struggling in their faith because they were coming under persecution. Many of them had been thrown out of the synagogue, thrown out of the synagogue. You're, you're basically persona non grata, right? You might as well be a leper, right? And in many times, your goods would be confiscated. You'd lose your inheritance, right? So they were struggling under this kind of fear and then also dealing with the concept of the Messiah being not only human but divine as well and his revelation being superior to that of angels through which the law on Mount Sinai was mediated to Moses. Right? So what he's giving them now, he's given them the definition but he's also showing them this is what it looks like. This is what you look for within yourself. This is what it looks like. So Abel, he loved God above everything else and had no problem making God his number one priority. With Enoch, he absolutely lived his life, lived his life in the light of the reality that God was always present. God was always observing everything he did, every choice he made. And he was determined that he was going to get a reward from God for that. He, he sought for it, like, right? When you, when you want something, when you, when you want an achievement, whether it's a promotion at work or, you know, some sort of degree or some sort of recognition or something, you work for it. You put the time into it. That's what Enoch did in his pursuit of God. Okay. So just some verses here to support that. Proverbs 8, 17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Right? So, now, this, you know, the structure of Hebrew poetry is that you have the same thing, but it's restated. Right? There's a restatement. It's called a parallelism. So, if you look at the first half of that phrase, I love those who love me. All right? So, now, God defines how that love how he considers that love to be expressed. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. So the way that God defines someone who loves him, when he looks at a person and says, that person really loves me, is that person who is diligently seeking him. Right? So how are we doing with that? Jeremiah 29, 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Psalm 119.10 With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 12, when you believe, or point 12, when you believe that something exists, that you want it, 
that there will be a blessing in getting it if you will seek it with your whole heart. Mark 12.30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And are we really doing this? And I think we, could, we can all admit that there's room for improvement, right? We all admit it. We'll see, but this is, this is why Abel and Enoch are there, right? Now next we move on to Noah. Um, so I'll just read the verse, verse 7. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Okay, now on the notes. Again, there's just a, a brief synopsis of what you'd go back and find in the book of Genesis. The name Noah means resting place. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. So that is, you know, the just tense mumbo-jumbo there means he did not begin to receive the grace of God. He began to see it and discover it for the first time as he reflected back over his life. Okay, so you're Noah now. And you're living in a, in, a, in, a, in a world that has become genetically corrupted. This is the world of, of Noah's time. Not only, the, not only the, the, the entire human race, but even the animal kingdom had been genetically corrupted as a result of the meddling that was going on. Right? So, so as Noah reflected back on that how would he find based upon what we know it says in in the book of genesis about noah how would he be reflecting back and see in his life the operation of grace the operation of grace in god's life from even before he was born And what, what's the terminology there? Yeah. You remember what it says about, about, um, about Noah? That Noah, actually, let, let's just go there. It'll be easier if we go there. So just look at where it picks up in verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Right? So, so there was a process through which Noah discerned that he had become the object of God's grace. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. So that phrase, perfect in, generation, in his generations, means that his entire line was kept by the grace of God free from genetic corruption. So as Noah reflected back, he said, well, God has protected me all this time. You know, it's, it's all come to bear. All of the, all of the you know, the, the genetic manipulation that the human race had fallen to, his family line was divinely protected from it. Okay. All right. So Noah being, so, okay, uh, let me see where I am in this stuff. Manifested in the reality, he began to see and discover it for the first time. 
as he reflected back over his life, was manifested in the reality of verse 9 that Noah was perfect in his generation. His family line had not been corrupted by the abomination. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He was divinely warned. So Noah was the recipient of prophetic information. God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now you'll notice that this phrase it comes in the Bible chronologically before, uh, before the verse which says, But Noah found grace in his eyes. Right? So he discerned it. Okay. So he was told how to respond to that prophetic information, build an ark. So what can you tell me about, what does anyone know about the topography of the earth prior to the flood? If you, you know, if you've done any, re it wasn't mountainous, it was fairly, the earth was fairly flat. One land mass with all the seas around it, right? And so here you are hundreds and hundreds of miles from from any water and you're going to build a boat and God tells you to build a boat. Wait, how did he know that? that it was one you can actually see it in the continental drift, right? If you if you look at a <laughs> if you look at a, a globe, you can actually see all the continents kind of fit together, right? Yeah, right there. Right? But um well, you know, how did he know that the flooded were broken apart. Right. Yeah, the land was singular, right? And then it didn't rain prior to the flood, right? So, so and there's you know answers in Genesis. They have a lot of this stuff, right? But you know I'm the not you're wrong with you, Well, no, I I could be wrong, but it's if so, it's not me that's wrong. It's well, whoever you know, but. <laughs> But, you know, when you read what they say about it and you look at, you know, a global map, it kind of makes sense, right? Well, and this is, this is uh, very reminiscent of Genesis 3. Yeah. Yeah, the continental drift theory, right? So, question, if that's the case, would every, would every like, country still have, like, a different, um, not temperature, but, like, you know, like, tropics down in South No, America, the climate was, the, climate, the, the climate, well, it was uniform. As a matter of fact, you know, when... They have found tropical fauna in Antarctic under the ice. No, it apparently was just water. It was a temperate, I guess you could say, Medi Mediterranean type of climate that was really conducive, you know, for agriculture, you know, and uh, and, and so things the flood like that. The too? Yes, okay. well, among other things, as a result of the flood, the lifespan of man began began its gradual descent to where it is now. That's why you had Methuselah living 900 some odd years. But wasn't there like large like trees, like giant humongous trees that the flood like cut down essentially? Yeah. So there's a ton of good books on there, you know, scientific stuff. Um, but that's kind of outside of what we're doing. You know, it's okay. So his respect for God, um, uh, let's see, he was, uh, he acted on the prophetic information. He started building an ark. 
He was moved with godly fear. His respect and reverence for God moved him to action. It was not by his own volition, so to speak, but it was the respect he had for God and his revelation that was the driving force behind his work. His respect for God moved him to act on the prophetic information and instruction so as to prepare, deliver, and rescue his family alive from the coming destruction. God had showed him something. He believed it and acted on it because he wanted to prepare, rescue, and deliver his family. Noah loved his family. So the time of construction was not more than 100 years. He stayed at work approximately 100 years, all the while doing everything else he had to do, right? So he still had to provide for his family. He still had to do all those things. But in addition to that, he spent 100 years building this boat hundreds of miles from the nearest body of water because God told him to do it and because he believed God. His beliefs, backed up by actions, which were both undergirded by a biblical faith that had to continuously expand to embrace the insane task through years, right? So imagine, imagine that. So yeah, you know what? God wants me to build a boat. You know, after about the third or fourth board, you say, I can't do this. It's too much. It's overwhelming, you know, right? I mean, okay, so let's bring this, let's kind of like just bring this home a little bit, right? So God... So, and you see this a lot, right? I mean, this was my experience early on, um, you know, when we started the ministry, you know, to the kids, to the kids in the North End, right? Right up front, there were a lot of people who volunteered and it was going really good. And then, you know, the, the, uh, the Springfield uh, Housing Authority, you know, reached out to us and they asked if we would consider it and doing it in, in more you know, public housing places around the city. And, uh, but like within seven or eight weeks, it ended up being just two of us there and we had to shut the whole thing down, right? And so that's what happens is, you know, I mean, life conspires against you, right? Whenever you want to do something for God, life is going to conspire against you, right? So imagine Noah starting out, you know, okay, I'll, you know, I, I'll do it, you know, and he, he gets 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road of building this boat, hundreds of, year, hundreds of miles from the water. Meanwhile, everyone around him is ridiculing him. Because see that nut out there? Anyone see that movie Steve with, Carell. um, huh? Steve Carell when he was Moses. What, was the, what was the name of that movie? I don't know, more than human with God. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that was a pretty funny movie, you know? And it, it kind of captured at least some of the ridicule and some of that he endured. No, no. So in that movie, even at a certain point, his wife and kids, you know, turned against him. Why are you doing this? You're a nut, you know. You're just a nut. And so, so Noah didn't live in a vacuum, you know. So he was subject to all of this, yet he kept going. He kept going because he had a firm belief in what God was calling him to do. Yep. And, you know, it was years of that going on and on and on. And he just kept telling him, God said, the flood is coming, it's coming. 
Yeah. And so, and so, well, so now, so let me finish this up anyway. His beliefs, backed up by actions which were both undergirded by biblical faith that had to continuously expand to embrace the task, the insane task through the years, accomplished two things. So, so think about this, that God purposely set him on a task, right, through which he was going to, God, from before time, knew that all this was coming. I guess he decreed that all this was going to come. He preserved the genetic line of Noah. Then he set him on a task that was going to take him 100 years to accomplish. And God, setting him through that task, throughout that 100 years, used that task to expand his faith. The process of sanctification is, is, is exhibited there, right? Okay. His diligence and dedication to the Ark Project was a practical statement of his condemnation to the world. Okay. So, true faith expresses itself in Noah's life when what he saw in life did not seem to line up with what the prophetic revelation was saying. He trusted God and acted on that belief and trust. Right? What about us? What are we doing with the prophetic revelation that God has given to us? Are we accepting it, acting upon it, moving to prepare ourselves and our families, or are we choosing to stay asleep? Sadly to say, most of the church is choosing to stay asleep. Right? What is the primary mission of the church today? Right? There's, there's, the, there's really two, two prime directives for the church today, right? What are they? What's prime directive number one, using Star Trek terminology? Well, assuming that you've already done that, so you're in the church, is to preach the gospel, right? To preach the gospel. Now, what keeps us from sharing the gospel with people that we encounter in our lives? What is it? Fear, intimidation. So that fear and intimidation is overriding the love that we are supposed to have for our fellow man, right? I mean, you see a person walking down the street or whatever, you know, that person, do, do we ever stop and think, you know what, that person bars the reality that they're saved, they're going to hell. They're going to hell. And let me tell you something, if Dante's Inferno is even a modicum close to what it's going to be like, and it really isn't, it's going to be a horrible place. It's going to be a horrible place. Now, how about members of your family? So the prime directive is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? The prime directive is we do that because we know that a greater flood is coming. And so the ark that we're all supposed to join together in building is the church of Jesus Christ, right? So the prime directive is to preach the gospel. Prime directive number one. Prime directive number two is to make disciples, right? So, so that outreach of, of the gospel exponentially increases with every turn of the wheel, right? That's what the church... If we're not doing that, there's no reason for our existence, pure and simple, right? We have become salt that has lost its flavor, right? We are to be... We are to be preaching the gospel. We are to be discipling those whom God sends to us 
and in turn preparing them to go out and share the gospel with, with others. Right? Yep. So, well, our children, obviously it starts there, right? But there's, you know, we're talking about the corporate body, right? What is the purpose of the corporate body? We just, we, you know, our purpose is more than just to get, to gather in churches across the land and sing praise and worship, you know, and have cappuccino and, you know, bagels and cream cheese once a week, right? There's a reason why God has put us in existence and he's given us a mission, right? And, and here's the thing, just like Noah, God has brought you to this time from before the foundation of the world. And the difficulties that come into your life, those days when you say, this is insane, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I'm just going to enjoy my life, you know, do this, that, and the other thing like everybody else. It is those hardships that God has ordained to bring into your life, that is the very thing that he uses to to increase your faith, to grow your faith, just like Mo, just like Noah. Okay, so true faith expresses itself. Let me go through the points real quick, and we're done. I've gone over time so much for two sessions at once. You want to expand your faith? Point number one, able. True faith expresses itself in real time when it comes to making choices concerning the things we love in this life and the love we have for Christ. Choosing Christ first always is hard to do, and necessitates more grace, which will necessitate the expansion of our faith. You know, when it says in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, ask and you will receive, knock and it will be open to you. That's what it, that's the, that is, so how many times have you asked for, have you asked for something and prayed for something and you haven't gotten it? So then that, 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 Scripture is restricted to a certain thing because it promises 100% that if you do this, if you ask, if you seek, if you will, if you knock, it will be given to you. It doesn't say it might be given to you. It says it will be given to you. Okay, well, I, you know, I've prayed for things. Some of the things were godly things, you know, for the church to get bigger, you know, for more people to come out to Bible study, for more people to watch my YouTube videos, you know, and I don't think that was an unhold, those were unholy requests. But, what, but wait a minute, God said that he would answer it. So either that's not true or my understanding of what that passage of scripture teaching is incorrect. You notice that comes on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount. Right? And so what that is saying is those who ask for grace, for grace and strength to live out what Christ is discoursing in the whole Sermon on the Mount, God promises if you seek it, if you knock and you ask for it, he, he will give it to you. Right? So, choosing Christ first is always hard to do and necessitates more grace which will necessitate the expansion of our faith. Point two, Enoch. True faith expresses itself in real time when it comes to the direction of where and how we express our persistent effort, hard work, and industry. Is it being expressed in the pursuit and walk with God or in the things of this world? 
This is hard to do and will require greater grace and the expansion of the conduit of faith. Point three, Noah. True faith expresses itself in life when what we saw in life or what we see in life does not seem to line up with what the prophetic revelation is saying. We trust God and act on that belief and trust. This is hard to do and will require greater grace and the expansion of the conduit of our faith. Okay, we're going to stop there. So I don't know. I'm doing the best I can, but I don't seem to be able to make much traction. But I don't think there's any point in rushing through this chapter when we've put the work and time in to get through the previous 10.